Well, hello there, and welcome to season three of Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. This season, we're going to be unpacking how we might enable individuals to make informed, personally relevant food choices. I'm excited to kick things off today with someone who has led numerous multi-stakeholder initiatives aimed at just that. Janet Ranganathan is the Managing Director and Executive Vice President for Strategy, Learning and Results at the World Resources Institute, a global research organization that addresses the urgent sustainability challenges related to food, climate, and the world at large. She leads the development and execution of the organization's five-year strategy and oversees the research integrity, managing for results, and data lab teams. She's also the co-author of the report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, which defines a menu of scalable solutions for how the world can adequately and sustainably feed more than 9 billion people by 2050, a challenge many of us change makers are working to address. Welcome to the show, Janet. Happy to have you here. Great. I couldn't be happier. It's great to see you again, Michael. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Your CV, quite impressive. How did you get started at the WRI? Well, interestingly, um, two weeks ago, just before the holidays, I celebrated my 30th, yeah, three decades anniversary at WRI. But I joined three decades ago, basically as a, a, a part-time, short-term intern to work on what was actually WRI's first project with business, looking at how companies account internally for their environmental costs. So it's been a blast ever since. I've never been a day when I, I haven't wanted to get back to work. It's like I'm on that steep learning curve. It's, it's, it's great. It's a great place to work. Congratulations. 30 years. That is impressive. Maybe for the audience, a little bit about WRI, Janet. What is that organization all about? Yeah, it's a, I'm still learning about WRI. It's a complicated organization and We've got a brand new five-year strategy that I'm, I'm happy about. I mean, it's sort of, it's a global organization. It looks things globally, but it also has a set of uh, country offices. So we have 12 country offices, two of them regional. Um, so we have, a glo- we have this global country perspective, but we also work in cities. So therefore, it's multi-level. Um, we're focused on these kind of three big challenges now, on food, the energy, and city system. But we also look at the enabling system of finance, economics, and governance. And we're, we do research. We're definitely a research-based organization, but we don't just do research for the sake of knowledge. We do it to um, advance our mission. So we're, we're kind of a complicated organization, which I love, because as you explored in some of your other sessions, you know, it, it's about system change, interconnection. You can't solve anything in a silo. So we're perfectly situated. I guess, you know, we, we spent we a lot of time trying to say, how do we actually communicate what, what WRI is? And one of our board members came up with this lovely mem, which I think captures it very nicely. It's called count it, change it, scale it. That's what WRI does. So count it, code word for data, research, analysis, in order to change it, whether it's one company or one city or one country. But we know that, you know, to deliver our mission, we have to also scale it from one country to many countries, one business to many. That's it in a nutshell. Easy peasy. <laughs> All righty. Love to talk with you about systems. But before we actually focus on the theme of this season, enabling choice, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about the bigger picture for the moment, food systems as a whole. So based on your 30 years at the WRI, what elements do you believe are critical to a truly sustainable food system? 
Yep. Oh, I, I love this question. And just by a little bit of background, you mentioned the, the report that we put out, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, which actually was about 10 years of work there. But I have to say before that, in my other 20 years at WRI, I found that every issue I worked on led back to the food system. So I worked on deforestation. Okay, well, what's the root cause? It led back to the food system. I work on poverty. The, the largest amount of poorest people work in this sector. Climate change is a quarter of the problem. Biodiversity loss, it's basically habitat loss, and that's actually the agricultural frontier. Water quality, water quantity, every issue raised back to food. So I said, like, instead of working on all these sort of symptoms, we need to work on the system. So that was the genesis for our work. But to answer specifically your question, we think there's three challenges that have to be simultaneously solved for the food system. So any so-called solution, you have to shine the lens of these three problems. So the first one is we need to be able to feed around 10 billion people by 2050. And that, that results in a 56% food gap between the amount of food we produce today and what we needed to feed 10 billion people. So it's not just a distribution problem. The second big problem is we've got a climate problem. It's a quarter of the problem right now globally. And actually under a business as usual strategy, it'll represent 70% of the whole economy-wide budget. So we have to solve the climate problem too. And then thirdly, we got a land problem. And this relates back to nature, is that you know, already half of the half of the habitable land is used for agriculture, two-thirds, by the way, just for ruminant meat alone. But if we want to protect what's left of primary forests, not only for nature, but because it's large reservoirs of carbon stored up, we have to solve that problem too. So those are the big three problems. So, you know, the people, the climate, and the nature. But to solve those problems, our research says we have to we have to kind of do four things. So it's produce, protect, reduce, and restore. And we need to do them simultaneously, and they're interconnected. So produce means produce more on the same land, because we need more food to feed people, but we want to, we want to do that without expanding agricultural land. So that's a big produce one. And then we need to protect, we need to do that one actually, to protect what little's left of nature, the primary forests. And then we have to reduce, which is reduce demand for land-intensive products. So ruminant meat, we can talk about that later. Um, but biofuels and anything else that use a lot of land. And we have to reduce food loss and waste. That's another big issue there. And then finally, restore. Just sort of depending on your definition of degraded land, there's anything between one and two billion hectares of land that we could bring back either into back for nature or back for production purposes. So, so that's it. I know you like frameworks. That's it in a nutshell. We're probably going to be talking about the reduce a lot today, which is about shifting diets as well as reducing food loss and waste, which you covered in your previous series. I am taking copious notes, Jenna, because I do, do, do love framework. So when you think about what you just described, feeding people, the climate challenge, the land problem, and the four things that you shared about what's to get done, how do you see that tied to individual consumers as maybe a follow-up question? Well, it sort of begins and ends with individual consumers and the choices they make about what they choose to put in their mouths. A lot of people say, oh, it's a population, Janet. Why don't you just work on that? But yeah, it is a population issue, but moreover, it's like a consumption issue of what we put in there. So um, unfortunately, consumers seem to be almost hostage to this sort of massive production system. Because the solving the, the food problem is both a production problem, but it's also a consumption problem. So we have to, we have to bring those two things together. And consumers have a really critical role there. And conceptually, I agree with you. But now as a single, one of the 9 billion probably consumers out there, 
how should I think about the impact that I make with my choices on the challenges you outlined? Where can I learn more about what the challenges are and whether or not my food choices actually make, might I say, a damn difference in ultimately the challenge you've outlined? Yep. So it's a great question because actually most individuals, when you think about climate change, they think, oh, you know, energy efficiency, renewable energy, my electric vehicle. Diets isn't the first thing they think of. But here's, here's a rough statistic that came out one of our, our reports a few years back. The average emissions from the diet of an average US person are more or less on par with their energy-related emissions. But most people think about anything about climate change and what they have to do about it, think about the energy thing. But actually, their food-related emissions are just as big. So we've, we've, got to, we've got to kind of create the education here. There's lots of materials out there. We just need to get them to the average citizen. But uh, that, that's an important factoid there. So um, I was at the last uh, climate conference in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. But, you know, every climate conference I go to now, they're held every year. There's more and more on the agenda about food. Like 10 years ago, it was always missing. But now there's food companies, farmers. Food is, is there. Unfortunately, you know, there isn't as much investment in the food sector by governments to try and address the climate problem as there's been in trying to drive renewable energy, but that's starting to change. And um, it's starting to be influenced. I mean, like companies, food companies are thinking about it, food services companies, we work with them a lot. They're starting to, to think about this. So I, I think it's catching on. It's just been a little slow. Yeah. And maybe going back to what you said earlier, being hostage to the system. When I think about the how might you enable individuals to make personal food choices, almost immediately, you know, based on my background, I think about information. You mentioned education, but I think you have the supply side as well. So based on your journey with the WRI and the research that you and your teams have led, is it one or the other? Is it both? Is it so much more? Is it something on the supply side. And that's really where we need to focus on, basically, if you offer better choices, the remaining choices that a consumer has are easier to make. Or is it truly a demand-driven challenge that we're dealing with over here? What are your thoughts on that, Janet? I, I think you already know, Michael, that it's both. <laughs> we had to do both. WRI has primarily decided, because we are not a membership-based organization, we don't work with thousands of individuals. Our intervention point has been the food services sector. You know, we work with about 65 companies. They serve up about 4.5 billion meals a year. So we feel like we change these few companies and what they're offering. So it is a sort of supply side, but it's closer to the individuals and producers. Then that, that's an effective way to do it. We've also sort of learned that, that by introducing new types of food and shifting people towards plant rich foods in restaurants, those sort of habits they also go home. They, they're taken home with you. Like people experiment in restaurants, but things they like, they replicate at the home. But we, we've definitely been focused on the food services industry as a, a kind of key lever of change. And not necessarily explicitly, like we, we, we learned pretty soon that actually just giving information and doing education campaigns, even if people say, oh yeah, that's great. I totally agree with it. I'm going to change my um, diet next time. They don't actually do it. They just say that they, they all have good intentions, like the New Year resolution. We just had that, but then we don't actually do it. So we actually think we need to help them, help them make these good choices and make these, these nuttage. So a lot of our work has been about that. You, you, you asked about the shifting diets, which was one of our prototypes, but it was very much about how do we make it easier 
for customers in the food services setting to make choices that are more plant-rich, which we ultimately think are not good for the planet and good for them. And is it fair, Janet, to say that your organization has been on a journey to think actually about from where an organization like yours can make the biggest impact? Because I remember your earlier work with the shift wheel, and I think you have evolved from the shift wheel to now the cool food pledge. Can you maybe walk me through a little bit about from where it started, why it evolved, and what it evolved into? Yep. So the shift wheel actually was a, an innovation in a report that we put out in 2016 as part of the World Resources Report series on how to shift diets. And um, at that time, just a little interesting story here, I was a sustainability advisor from Mars, the food company, and I met a very interesting guy there, uh, Daniel Venard. And um, he actually became a co-author of the report for me. But something he brought into that work was the innovative work that he had been doing about how do you actually transform fast-moving goods business. And so they had done this, he'd done this analysis looking at what can we learn from these transitions that have happened in the um, FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods business sector, that will help us shift diets, because he was interested in that too. And so there was this work done looking at some of these big shifts that happened, like, you know, the issue around cage-free eggs or shifting from butter to, to vegetable oil-based products or from large pack, you know, deter laundry detergents to sort of concentrate, a whole slew of this. We looked at what had driven these successful and rapid transitions, and we tried to learn from that. And so the shift wheel was the product from that, and we identified four common strategies that were used in these shifts. So the first one was minimize disruption to the consumer. So make it as easy as possible to do the shift. A good example of that in our space here, like is if you think about soya milk and almond milk, I mean, there's so many of them now, there's coconut milk, placing those in the dairy section. If you're trying to shift people from dairy to those, then when, where do people usually go when they're thinking about dairy? They go to the fridge, okay? So putting them in there, putting them in cartons like milk, um, even though they might not need to be refrigerated, it sort of goes with the habits of consumers. So that's sort of an interesting example there. The second strategy was sell a compelling benefit. An example I loved there, because it really resonated with me in my childhood, it's like the majority of the British people, I'm British, you might have guessed, their first introduction to fish as a kid is fish fingers. And I have to say it was bird's eye. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention they do, but bird's eye fish fingers. And it was always cod. It was always pure white. It was a speck of gray. You wouldn't eat it. You know, you'd be picky about your food. But anyway, cod's been fished out. So birds I had to sort of shift people to Pollock. So how did they do that? Well, first of all, Pollock looks a bit gray, so they had to deal with that issue. But what they did was they sold a compelling bill of it. So one of their scientists found out, oh, actually, Pollock has much more higher omega-3 than cod. And, you know, people with children, you know, that's the, the fish fingers. Omega-3 is associated with brain power. It was a very compelling benefit. The third strategy was maximize awareness. And that's your usual things like, you know, increase the display of the product that you're trying to sell. That's why the thing of the big margins that they're trying to sell is right there in front of you. And then, then lastly, the hard thing, but really important thing is like, how do you evolve social norms about it? Launched that, got applied by a variety of companies, and then your organization moved on. And I think you started to work on the cool full pledge. Why did you leave the shift wheel behind and why did you shift to the cool full pledge? So we didn't leave it behind. Actually, many of the strategies that we have now um, that are used in cool food 
kind of build on those. We might give them another name. We have this 6P thing. We might use placements rather than maximize awareness, but very much builds on it. What Corfu did added on, it's like, okay, we got this shift wheel, but how are we going to actually, you know, roll it out there and apply it? So that's what Cool Food is. So Cool Foods is a coalition of the companies and actually hospitals and cities and universities. It's quite a diverse group. They're basically organizations that serve up meals every day to people. So what we said is that many of these companies and organizations, they've got a climate, they've already got an organizational climate commitment. And, you know, they're thinking about the usual suspects, clean energy, how do they reduce their emissions from travel, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't thinking about, we serve up meals and we source ingredients. And the upstream of that is a lot of emissions. That's a quarter of emissions globally that the ag sector is. So we said, we're going to help you achieve your already existing climate targets by setting a target around your food offerings. And we'll help you calculate what those emissions reductions would be. And we set a target and we're going to reduce the emissions from the ingredients that go into food that are in your upstream supply chain by 25% by 2030 relative from, I think it was 2015. So we had a cadre of organizations that wanted to help them do that, and they were really excited to do it. And so Cool Food was launched with that in mind. And if I hear you then correctly, so you basically have expanded the toolbox to help both organizations to change their offering with more intent. And you're helping consumers, uh, the users of products, to make better decisions as well. Is that a fair summary? Yep. I'd say cool foods help companies serve up you know, plant-rich foods in a way that reduces their emissions, serves up tasty food for their customers, hopefully healthier, usually they are, and it's good for people and planet. It's building upon making impact, Janet. I'm always really, really curious to think through how do you ultimately make what impact? Is it a new policy? Is it a new product? Is it finding an organization that's going to shift something? How does your organization think about theories of change or practices of change that you want to support or use in order to do what your organization is working on? Yep, it's a great question, and I love it. So... It's been an evolution at WRI. Like when I first joined WRI, we used to think about what we call outputs. Oh, we produce a great publication, or we got great press coverage, or we had a great meeting and lots of people attended. Nice, okay. But to meet to an end. And then we moved on to, okay, well, what's the end that we do these things for? So we moved to this sort of period of thinking about outcomes. So from outputs to outcomes. Outcomes are, we get a policy passed. We get more financing for climate. We get regulations passed. But in this new chapter of WI, we're saying, well, outcomes aren't the end either. A new policy, like we've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, but that's not the end game. The end game for that, actually, in this case, it's about economic growth. It's, it's about jobs and it's about greenhouse gas emissions reductions. So we're asking, we're forcing ourselves to ask, what is the impact? So do you remember the people, nature and climate? Ultimately, all impact links to one or more of those th three things. So and go back to food now, it's the GHG reductions. That's the impact. Or it's the amount of additional food that's served up. That's a people thing. Or it's less water used to produce the food. That's a nature piece, you know, or less land. So we're pushing ourselves now to actually link our outputs to outcomes to impact. And you use the word theory of change. And that's precisely what theories of change does. It sets out your assumptions about if we do this, 
this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen. Of course, it's easier said than done because often impact often happens many years after the outcome. Just to give you a little small example, there was a, during COVID, there was an investment in helping to retrain and get jobs for veterans. So the outcome there was, I don't know, the government supplied X million dollars to invest in that. That wasn't the impact though. Someone actually went back and did the impact and they found it was only just like a handful of people actually had jobs that lasted. We need to go back and look at whether this works, but that's the difference between the impact and the outcome. Hear you loud and clear, and I love that framework. Outputs, outcomes, and ultimately impacts. Correct. For people, nature, and climate together, not separately. Yeah. In what areas do you believe the WRI has made the biggest impact as it relates to shifting diets so far? I think WRI played a key role of putting the issue of food and in particular diets on the map for those people thinking about climate change. It just wasn't there. I also sort of say that there was a sense that actually eating meat might be more problematic for the, the climate than vegetables. But I think we also differentiated between ruminant meat, which by the way, you know, has 20 times more greenhouse gas emissions impact than your average plant-based protein, like a bean or a lentil. Um, that, that wasn't there. So that helped us to be much more focused in our shifting diets. We're not just trying to shift everything, but shifting what matters the most. So I think that was good. And I think helping the food services sector to realize that they can play a really critical role here in helping to deliver on climate commitments and, and impact there while still serving up tasty food. Yeah. Back to enabling systems change as well. You've been at the WRI for 30 years. What are your thoughts on ultimately the role of a change leader in an organization about ultimately owning, sponsoring, driving the work on, for example, the shift wheel or the cold food pledge? Is that something that you really believe should be driven and is actually enabled and facilitated, accelerated by leaders who own it? Or do you ultimately believe that it is somewhat leader agnostic these days and it's really the organization at large? Yeah, no, one of the most important lessons I've learned is you can't do anything on your own. You have to do everything together through partnerships and collaborations. One of the things I'm probably most known for at WRI is the, the founding and creation of the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which, by the way, is looking at the whole issue of food now, too. But the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, it's only a success because we, we co-designed, co-created it with all the people that we wanted to use it. It became a standard because the people at that time that were working on GHG accounting and all the experts that we brought them into a room, a big tent effort over you know a number of years, but we we co-designed, co-created, co-tested, co-rolled it out. You know that you know the whole the whole adage. You know if you want to go far, you know take many people with you, but don't expect to get there too fast. If you want to go fast, go alone, but don't expect to get very far. So true. Totally hear you. Let's shift to the last part of the conversation, Janet. Probably our biggest audience on this show are change makers working in food systems. If you think about your career at WRI and maybe even before, any insights worthwhile sharing with the audience about how to affect change at scale based on your experience as a change maker? So first, I'm a strong believer that form follows function. Okay, I'm a biologist. That's what happened in nature. Okay, so being very clear about what you're trying to accomplish, you know, set those long term goals and translate them into more nearer term goals. 
But to go back to our discussion about the difference between output and outcome and impact, to find those long-term goals in terms of impact and recognize you know, that actually these, these crises, these interconnected crises of people, nature, and climate, they're integrated. So you need to think about that. Because if you don't, you're going to leave some synergies on the table or you're going to end up with some unintended consequences that you, you really didn't want to see. It's just full of that. Meet the users where they are. Meet your target audiences where they are. I've learned that it's not enough to be right. You can come with all of the great visuals and data and facts you want, but if someone doesn't see that as in their interest, you're probably not going to persuade them. So you've got to meet them where they are, and then you've got to figure out how to take them to where you want to go. We've already talked about, you know, with the example of the greenhouse gas protocol, is that, you know, if you want to have big impact, you know, you're going to have to build an ecosystem, a community of, of, of players in there. And you probably need to put your flag down. You know, you have to be humble here. It's co-owned. You don't see the WI flag all over the GHD protocol. It was a collaborative effort. Everyone's name. You look at it. If you look at the authorship, there's hundreds of names on there. What are you the most proud of, of the work that you've done at the WRI? I'd like to feel like I'm proud of all of it. It's like you're asking me to pick between my children. <laughs> Uh, I love all the work we do. If I if I didn't love it, I I would have stopped it and moved on to something else. But I, I guess the greenhouse gas protocol. You know why? Because what measure gets managed? And actually, the greenhouse gas protocol is working on a very challenging land sector at all now. But it's really critical. If you don't get the metrics right, you have all these people doing these good things with good intentions, but they end up moving the needle in the wrong direction. So I'm a big fan of you know robust metrics and, and systems. So. The second thing I'd mention is what we've been talking about here today, uh, Michael, which is really the work on creating a sustainable food future. I think that's been very agenda setting, both within WRI and externally. And I'd, I'd sort of particularly highlight, you know, our work on shifting diets, which we talked about, and the, the Cool Food Initiative, and, and also our work on Food Champions 12.3 and convening organizations to reduce the food loss and waste. And my third one, which is really looking forward um, more, is really WRI's new five-year strategy. I feel that this is our most consequential strategy that we've ever wrote. And it's consequential because it focuses us on system and country transitions. It also demands of us that we focus on integrated action for people, nature, and climate. We don't silo those. We bring those to the center of all of our work. And then lastly, what we also talked about is it shifts us and pushes us to go beyond thinking about outcomes to actually measuring impact in terms of people, nature, and climate. That's, that's what I would say. Yeah. What I am actually very grateful for as it relates to the WRI, it's not just an amazing think tank and ultimately sharing really actionable insights, but just as importantly, working with organizations to make it actually work and activate the materials as well. Because that, I think, is such a unique aspect of the WRI. So thank you for all the things that your organization has done and continues to do for the industry. Final question. What keeps you going? Um, the imperative. I mean, it's, it's this, this is a make or break decade. I mean, I know we keep saying that, but it's absolutely true. I mean, we're so off on all of our nature goals, our climate goals. The SDGs, many of them we haven't met or even come close to or even know how to measure. We, we, we got to do it. We don't have any choice. We have, to, we have to go for this with gusto. I happen to have the privilege of working at an amazing organization that's impact-oriented. I work with amazing colleagues that I continue to learn from every day. It's just like 
I think we can do this. We are 11th hour, you know, 59 minute species. I, we can do this. We, we'll get it done. But, you know, 80% will get it done in the last hour. And I'm ready and we're there and we're going to do it. It's 5 to 12. We need to get going. I totally agree. Thank you so much for the time you spent with me today and for the insight you shared. Thanks so much, Janet. Absolutely my pleasure. And I look forward to listening to the rest of your series too. Thank you. Reflecting on today's interview, here are my top three takeaways for change makers. Count it, change it, scale it. I loved Janet's simple summary of change making. Begin with the data. Formulate your assumptions about if we do this, this is going to happen. And then, that is going to happen. Start small. Try one pilot experiment to see, do our assumptions hold true? Does this truly work? What might need to change? And once you have that sorted, expand. Apply your learnings to new projects, initiatives, and partnerships to create bigger impact. Design and act with your ultimate goal in mind. Collaborate and co-create with the people and organizations you want to benefit. Put your flag down and be humble. Consider whether you're creating the desired impact. As Janet said, don't just work on the symptoms, work on the system. And lastly, don't be afraid to evolve your work and expand your toolbox. It is a natural part of change making in a complex system. Janet talked about the principles of the shift wheel, minimize disruption, maximize awareness, sell a compelling benefit, and evolve social norms as a framework for influencing consumer behavior. Then, WRI's Cool Food Initiative helped companies and organizations apply these principles in the real world. We'll be diving deeper into Cool Food with a company case study later this season. You don't want to miss it. For more information about the World Resources Institute and the initiatives and frameworks from today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. And thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Food Lab Talk. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. Imagine, believe, and most importantly, act. See you next time.